Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in to another episode in our Toolkit series, where we're taking a deep dive each month into a single topic, recapping the basics, but also focusing in on frequently asked questions and judgmental areas. This month is all about derivatives. 848 is not blanket relief that applies to all scenarios. It's not a free pass and do whatever you want with LIBOR hedges. Each hedge relationship by type and nature may have different areas of the relief that it qualifies for and, and, and that it doesn't qualify for. Don't wait until the derivative or the hedged item are modified to start thinking about the accounting implications to your hedges. That was Brett Dooley and Chip Curry, both from PwC's national office. They're joined by Nick Malone, a partner in our financial markets practice, and they're continuing the series for the discussion of what you need to know about LIBOR-based derivatives and reference rate reform. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started. Brad, Chip, Nick, thanks so much for joining me today. And our topic is a great one, I think, to round out our month of derivatives, and that's focusing in on LIBOR-based derivatives, what you need to know. And clearly, there's some complexity here because you not only need to know derivatives, but also we have you know, the change in LIBOR that's coming up. So maybe just to kick things off, Nick, I thought it'd be helpful to get a little background on reference rate reform and how the discontinuation of LIBOR is actually going to impact companies. And then we'll get into some of these derivatives. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Heather. Um, you know, companies typically have direct exposures to LIBOR through uh, debt contracts, loans, other assets, you know, leases and derivatives. And LIBOR index derivatives in particular make up just a, an enormous amount of the floating rate instruments that we see out there in the market. You know, so dealing with the upcoming discontinuance of U.S. dollar LIBOR in, in June of 2023 uh, is a massive undertaking for, for a lot of companies. And you know, while financial institutions typically have larger direct exposures uh, to LIBOR than, than, than corporates, uh, I think this is something that all entities should really be paying attention to. You know, we, we see... In addition to the direct exposures, there are things like you know indirect exposures uh, that all companies have. You know, LIBOR is, is often used as a discount rate in valuation for all different types of products. We've seen LIBOR exposures in you know vendor or supplier contracts where you know penalty clauses or price escalation clauses are, are linked to to LIBOR. Um, so it impacts all companies in some you know way, shape, or form. And then just a little bit of the background too that you mentioned in, in the U.S. Uh, the Alternative Reference Rate Committee recommended the Secured Overnight Financing Rate, or SOFR, um, as the preferred uh, replacement rate to be used to, to replace LIBOR. This isn't just a U.S. effort. I think it's important to note that. Uh, there are other jurisdictions around the world that are you know, similarly trying to sunset LIBOR. Uh, and in fact, we've seen in some places that that's already happened. And in order to facilitate this transition away from, from U.S. LIBOR, uh, all LIBOR-based contracts will have to be modified to a new reference rate prior to the cessation of LIBOR, you know, as I mentioned, in June of 2023. Broadly speaking, you know, there are a few ways that that transition can happen. You know, we've seen some companies that you know, try and go, they're proactively modifying their contracts to move to a different reference rate. You know, that might give them a little bit more flexibility in terms of what the new rate will be, what the contract will look like in the future. But it also could be operationally burdensome for those companies that have you know, many, many LIBOR-indexed instruments. Some contracts actually already contain uh, what's known as fallback language uh, in, in the agreement, which kind of says, 
you know, what's going to happen if and when LIBOR goes away. And there are typically sort of waterfalls in those agreements that'll say, you know, if LIBOR goes away, what rate or rates, you know, the contract would fall back to. And I think finally, there, you know, there was some recent legislation that was passed that will likely help many of these harder to modify LIBOR-based instruments uh, that don't have fallback language. So I think there's, that's obviously extremely high level for a very, really complicated topic. You know, so if, if our listeners did want to, you know, hear a little bit more about the background and around reference rate reform overall, um, they can go back and sort of listen to our, our podcast from uh, from February. Yep. And we'll include a, a link to that in the show notes, because I do think it's, you know, this in and of itself could be a whole podcast. One question, though, Nick, before we get into some of the FASB response and otherwise, from maybe just more of a practical point of view. So now we're sort of six months on, right? We're recording this at the end of June. And are you seeing most companies, it's been pretty seamless, they're just getting new contracts, they've moved from LIBOR to, you know, the SOFA rate, or is it still causing a bit of uncertainty as people are really starting to deal with this from a practical point of view? I think I think it largely depends on the type of contract we're talking about. You know, to be totally honest, I don't know that we've seen a ton of proactive modifications of instruments. I think particularly for derivatives, which is kind of what we're focused on here, there are some um, industry-wide uh, protocols that are, that are in place to, to uh, automate, or not automate, but facilitate the the transition away from LIBOR onto a, a new rate like SOFR. Um, and so there are a lot of companies that are following those protocols, those industry-wide protocols for derivatives. Um, I think in some of the sort of more, more esoteric, you know, products that we're seeing out there, th- those are probably where there's a little more, little more complication and still a, little, a lot of work to do. Yeah, because I was just look, thinking about the dates that you were running through. So it's like a year and this is going to be gone. And so that's not that we've been talking about this for quite some time and it feel, and now it really is upon us. So there's definitely a call to action. It seems like for companies. All right. So with all of that said, um, I will echo Nick's reminder to go listen to the other podcast. It might, it might make you want to get going on changing some of these contracts. Let's turn to some of the standard setting and then how companies can be dealing with this from a practical point of view. So Brett, maybe I'll turn to you just for an update on how the FASB responded to, to these changes Nick was just talk, talking about. So existing accounting standards had dealt with modifications of contract terms. That wasn't new, but they never really contemplated something of this magnitude really fundamentally affecting a wide variety of contracts uh, simultaneously. So the FASB issued new guidance. Uh, we refer to it as ASC 848 uh, to provide companies with relief from certain accounting requirements when dealing specifically with reference rate reform. And, and that guidance can be broadly split into uh, two types of relief, contract modification relief and hedge accounting relief. And here today, we're going to be talking about that second piece, uh, the hedge accounting relief, uh, which is the impact of, of reference rate reform to hedge relationships specifically and, and 848 more broadly. And while derivatives and hedge relationships have a lot of complications to think through uh, even for derivatives not in hedges, there's still some relief in 848 uh, if the modification is a qualifying contract modification. Uh, for example, you don't have to reassess if the contract is a derivative in its entirety, uh, and you don't have to reassess if there's an other than insignificant financing element. And that's a key consideration when thinking about off-market derivatives, for example. So then, Chip, maybe bringing you into the conversation 
this series this month, we've talked about other hedging relationships. And so how does this reference rate reform relief interact more broadly with hedge accounting guidance? Yeah, and, and you know, as we've talked about on some of those other podcasts, you know, in, in this series and, and, and others, um, hedge accounting, you know, it can, it can be complicated. Uh, you know, there's many different types of hedges. There's fair value hedges. There's cash flow hedges. There's interest rate. There's foreign currency. There's hedges of net investments. So, so there's all types of hedges. There's also many different ways uh, that you can demonstrate that a hedge is highly effective, different ways to think about, you know, what you include your in your effectiveness test and, and even different ways to measure and record the impact of hedge accounting. And so, you know, with, with a complicated base, providing relief to, to a complicated base, you know, will sort of by definition might be complicated. So what you see in um, in the relief, Brett referred to it as its topic 848 in the complication is um, the, the, the nature and the type of relief that you get is dependent upon, you know, the type of hedge um, that you've entered into and the choices that the company made in applying hedge accounting. Um, so, for example, the method that they are using to assess effectiveness, depending on that method, there will be different types of relief that are available. You know, as a result, the hedge accounting and relief in 848 can be adopted sort of on a hedge by hedge basis. And multiple elements of the relief can be elected on a single hedging instrument. And it can, they can, the relief can be elected at different points in time. The relief in 848 is not permanent. Much of the relief is designed to end the minute the hedging relationship is no longer going to be impacted by reference rate reform. And the guidance itself sort of has an expiration date or a, a sunset date. Um, now, this was complicated. It is complicated, but but a lot of it was by design. Um, so, for example, the, the idea that you could elect different elements of the relief at different times, that was by design because it might be common for a company to go through different stages of reference rate reform. So, for example, you might have a derivative and a debt instrument that currently both relate to LIBOR and they both reference LIBOR, and you need one element of relief. Then the company might change the terms of the derivative, but not have changed the terms of the debt yet. So now you need a different kind of relief. And then, as I said, eventually both of them will have moved off of LIBOR, you know, perhaps onto SOFR, and you're really, you really don't ever need that relief. So, so the, 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 the literature was built to allow for different elements of the relief to be elected as you sort of move along in your, in your process. Now, that all sounded very complicated. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and, and what it might be easier to do is maybe we'll maybe walk through some of, uh, you know, a couple of common hedges, like a cash flow hedge and a fair value hedge. And then we can kind of illustrate how one might think through the different steps of the guidance. Um, that might be easier to try to do by example as opposed to talk about it at a high level. Yes, definitely agree with that. Maybe one question, Chip, for you before we jump into some of the examples. From a practical point of view, as people, as you're dealing with companies that are making some of these changes, are you seeing that they are able to avail themselves of this various relief? Or are there subtleties here that, you know, often you may not actually be able to qualify? And again, this very big generality, I just think it's helpful for people to know it's like, oh, yeah, generally, this is going to work. I just need to know the details or like, no, you've got to be, you know, it can be more difficult. Generally, we've seen success. Like we've seen people be able to avail themselves of the relief. It takes a little bit of time to point to the specific paragraphs that give you the relief for your specific fact pattern and 
that in of itself can be complicated, but generally we've we've seen success. The one area where there's there's not a lot of relief um, to is if you take your derivative and you not only change it from LIBOR to SOFR or eliminate that, but you also want to make other changes to the term of the derivative, that's where we've seen that there, there's not that element of relief that might require a sort of de-designation and redesignation of the hedging relationship. But absent that, in most cases, Heather, we, we've seen people be able to kind of work their way through through the guidance. Okay, so two responses to that. First, on your second point, sort of makes sense. Like if you're making other changes, it logically follows that you might have to make other accounting changes. And I'm very glad your answer was yes, because that's a good incentive for our listeners to keep listening. And since I didn't know the answer before I asked you, that's quite a dangerous question. So good answer there. And definitely for our listeners, stay tuned. So with that, then let's get into some of these examples. And um, since I personally prefer cash flow hedges, we will start with that. And in this particular case, let's talk about a cash flow hedge when a company has variable rate debt based on LIBOR, and then they're hedging the changes in the variability of cash flows due to changes in interest rates with a LIBOR-based interest rate swap. So fairly straightforward background. Nick, how do you think about this? Yeah, sure, Heather. So I think to tease out a little bit of the, the concepts that Chip was talking about before about different pieces of relief being applicable at different points in time over the life of a of a hedge. The first thing to point out is for for cash flow hedges that I think trips people up a bit is there's actually pieces of the relief that are applicable to the hedge before the co- a company even makes uh, an amendment to the derivative of the hedged item. Um, and so, so what I what I mean by that is, you know, on one of the recent uh, debt hedging podcasts, I think Brett, you actually had brought up. Uh, you know, talk about one of the cornerstones of cash flow hedge accounting, which is that the cash flows you're hedging need to be probable of occurring. So if I have a, you know, Heather, to your point, if I have a LIBOR-based hedged item that goes out past June of 2023, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to have LIBOR cash flows, you know, throughout the life of that hedge. So so what do I do about that? And so there's a piece of the guidance that, that says, even today, before you make a, um, a, a change, uh, you can... For the pro- for for the purposes of asserting probability of cash flows, you can pretend like you're going to have LIBOR cash flows through the life of the hedge, to to, to overcome the, the the probability hurdle. I, I think there's a there's a, another piece of the relief uh, that relates to effectiveness testing. A lot of effectiveness tests are sort of forward look. You're using forward looking information, forward looking cash flows to run the quantitative regressions or whatever the you know whatever methodology a company's chosen. Again, if I'm mapping out. What's the you know, what's my hypothetical derivative? What's my perfect hedge for these stream of cash flows that are that I know are going to change from LIBOR to SOFR in the future? What do I do about that in my effectiveness test? Uh, and so there's another piece of the relief that allows uh, for the purposes of assessing effectiveness for companies to assume again that LIBOR is not going to go away, which allows them to you know potentially get a better you know match in their hedge effectiveness assessment with their actual derivative you know to the extent that they're doing quantitative assessments of effectiveness. So those are a couple of things that are that are applicable before a company even code pieces of the relief that are applicable before a company even makes any change to the to the derivative or hedged item. Let's assume I had the relationship, but now I've gone ahead and made the change to my um, to the LIBOR base. What what happens now? Yeah, so I, I think you know the, in sort of the next piece of the life cycle here of walking through this hedge. Let, let's let's assume that the company actually went in and uh, modified the floating leg of their interest rate swap. 
from LIBOR to SOFR. So, so they haven't changed the, the hedged item yet. That's still LIBOR-based, but now they have a, a SOFR-based hedging instrument. Uh, normally, under you know standard hedge accounting rules under ASC 815, uh, any sort of modification to a critical term like the index on the swap uh, would, would result in a de-designation of the hedge. Uh, 848 provides relief um, that basically says, if, if all you're doing is modifying uh, the derivative from live, you know, off of LIBOR onto a new reference rate and to Chip's point earlier, you're not doing anything else that's unrelated, any other amendments that are unrelated to reference rate reform. The guidance gives you a free pass and says you do not have to de-designate that hedge relationship. Uh, you can kind of continue the existing hedge, you know, a- as it was. But again, you know, that would need to be documented and up your hedge documentation updated, you know, when that occurs. So, you know, I think what you're, if you make that change, so you, you don't have to de-designate, but what you're left with now is a SOFR-based derivative hedging a LIBOR-based hedged item. If you were to do a normal hedge effectiveness test, that may or may not work. You know, it just depends on the correlation between LIBOR and SOFR. That, that, that's a hedge that may or may not work. But 848 provides relief here. The specific relief uh, will depend upon the method of, a, of, a, of effectiveness that the company is, is, is using. Um, but the relief is designed to basically permit the hedge to be considered highly effective when there's a mismatch in the rates between the, the hedged item and the hedging instrument. And so maybe maybe pausing here in, in the middle of this, because um, I think there's a good example of some things that we tried to introduce and, and talk about earlier. You know, first is that you see here that the company is electing different elements of 848 at different times. And, and Chip first started talking about this, where, you know, you have the first uh, elements of relief when the swap and debt are both LIBOR. And then we move to when the swap is modified uh, to move from LIBOR to SOFR, different, uh, different stage of the relief. And then I think Nick is going to talk in a minute about the, the next phase. Uh, so think of those separately. And the second thing I would highlight is something Nick said, uh, that when a company elects to apply the hedge accounting relief in 848, they should be updating their hedge documentation. So it's not something that's just going to happen automatically. There's, there's some work to be, to be done in, in the documentation. And then the third thing I'd note uh, is that the availability of relief and, and the nature of, of the relief sometimes depends on what the company actually does and the hedge relationship that they're, that they're focused on. You know, here we're talking about the only thing they modified on the swap was related to reference rate reform. And, uh, for example, the method the company is using to demonstrate the hedge is highly effective will impact the application of 848 uh, as well. So I think, you know, it's always important to think about what phase you're in and what element of, of 848 uh, you're specifically electing at that time. No, I think that's a great point to highlight. And Nick, if I go back to you, we still have one more sort of uh, action that's going to occur that's going to change the relationships. Right, right. And, yeah, and so in order to sort of take it a step further and tease out a little bit of what Brett was saying. So now let's assume, just continuing with that example from before, let's assume now that the interest rate on the hedged item on the debt is modified from LIBOR to SOFR. So, you know, similar to, to when the derivative was modified that we talked about earlier, even though there's a change in, in one of the critical terms of, of the hedged item, again, if it's if it was a change that's only related to reference rate reform, you you, you don't have to de-designate the hedge. You're allowed to continue the existing hedge, even though you've modified the you you you've modified the hedged item. In addition, there's relief in 848 that that says um, if you're modifying the hedged item, you can assume it's a modification of the hedged item as opposed to 
you know, having to do the, that 10% cash flow test for modification versus extinguishment. So I can, I can, I don't have to redesignate. I can assume this modification is a mod, is an accounting modification as well. And so now, now what you're left with is I have a SOFR based derivative. I have a SOFR based hedged item. Um, and so an interesting things happen, thing happens. And I think Chip alluded to this earlier is now I no longer have a mismatch. I no longer have either the hedge is no longer affected by reference rate reform. I don't have any sort of LIBOR-based exposure anymore. You know, I don't have any exposure to a rate that's going away. Um, and so what happens is you actually come off of the, the relief. There's no more 848 relief to apply now that you have a SOFR-based hedged item, a SOFR-based hedging instrument. All right. So I think that's helpful. And it kind of lands you then now you have effectively a new hedging relationship, but with no discontinuation or ineffectiveness that had to be recognized in the meantime. So I think that's a very key point. One question on this fact pattern, and this may be obvious, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So the example we walked through, you changed your hedging instrument first. So you changed that rate and then the debt stayed uh, at LIBOR. Is there any difference if you kind of change the debt first and then the hedging instrument, or is it similar? It's just, the, you know, it's a different instrument that got changed. The, the guidance is sort of written in a way that um, if either the hedging instrument or the hedged item is still referencing LIBOR, you know, a rate that's going away, there's going to be relief provided to you. But to Chip's point earlier, it may be, you may trace through the literature a little bit differently, but you get to a place where if you have that mismatch, there is some relief around effectiveness, et cetera, for you. Okay, good. I hoped that was the case, but I just wanted to confirm because we were so specific in that example. So then one more follow-up question. So Nick just mentioned that once the hedging relationship is no longer exposed to LIBOR, there's no more relief. And Chip also mentioned that it's expiring. And so, you know, we, we mentioned this briefly, Brett, but maybe you can just help us think through is, you know, what are the implications? How does this exactly work? Sure. Uh, so you, we talked about this sunset date, right? And the, the sunset date you hear people talking about is when the guidance effectively supersedes itself. Um, if you haven't amended your derivative and your hedged item by this date, the relief will no longer be available. And some elements of the relief that companies may be applying will, will end. Um, and as Nick talked about, the, the relief also ends for an individual hedge when it no longer references LIBOR because it's no longer needed, uh, right? You can think of it, you can think of all this as ending uh, at the earlier of when a hedge relationship is no longer exposed to reference rate reform or the sunset date. Uh, and the FASB recently released an exposure draft to extend the sunset date of 848 uh, all the way to 1231 of 2024. All right. That's, that's definitely helpful and something to keep an eye on there. So let me switch gears then to fair value hedges. And I mentioned this on prior podcasts. I always find these a little harder to follow, but let's walk through this in the same approach so we can all go along. And Chip, how would that type of relationship work under 848? Maybe describing the relationship first and then doing the walkthrough. Yeah. So maybe similar to, to Nick, how you you pick the fact pattern. Let's let's talk about a common hedge strategy where companies issued fixed rate debt, and they're hedging the change in fair value due to the change in the benchmark interest rate to use the standard nomenclature. So I'm hedging for interest rates, and I'm using a receive fixed pay LIBOR swap to hedge this fixed rate debt. And because the swap is LIBOR, the benchmark interest rate that I've chosen to hedge is LIBOR. So that's 
relatively common fact pattern in, in the fair value space. So unlike the cash flow hedging example, the debt's not going to need to be modified due to reference rate reform because it's fixed rate debt and it's it doesn't obviously reference LIBOR. So what we're really now focused on is when are we going to make changes to the swap? So once the interest rate swap changes from, let's say, LIBOR to SOFR, either because of it goes through a fallback or it goes through one of the, the mechanisms that Nick was talking about, like an industry-wide mechanism or through a modification. And let's, again, keep it simple. The only thing that's changing is the swaps moving from LIBOR to SOFR. We're going to need some relief in 848. So go back to something Nick said earlier. Um, 848 provides some relief because ordinarily if we move the swap from LIBOR to SOFR, that would be a change in a critical term of the hedging relationship. We'd have to de-designate and redesignate. Just like for cash flow hedges, there's relief for fair value hedges that, that I don't need to do that. So, you know, so, so that's good and, 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 you know, sort of consistent with uh, what we heard from, from cash flow hedges. You know, one thing that's a bit unique about fair value hedges and compared to cash flow hedges is, you know, like they said, there's multiple phases in cash flow hedging or could be multiple steps. You know, as you step through reference rate reform, here there's really not. You modify the swap from LIBOR to SOFR and you sort of enter the relief and you exit it sort of simultaneously because I need the relief because of the change. But once the change is made, I no longer you know, need relief on an ongoing basis because that hedge is not going to be impacted by reference rate reform. Okay. So in addition to electing the expedient that I don't want to de-designate and redesignate the hedging relationship, there's some other choices and, and relief that the company can apply. Um, so the first thing they could apply is they can change the designated benchmark interest rate. So remember I said earlier, I had a LIBOR swap. I was hedging the debt for changes in interest rates, and I defined changes in interest rates based upon change in LIBOR. Well, now that my swap is indexed to SOFR, I'm not sure I would want to define my hedge risk as being changes in LIBOR. I would probably want to change that so that my designated benchmark interest rate risk would, no, would not be LIBOR, it would be SOFR. And, and the standard allows you to do that. You can change the designated benchmark interest rate. And as long as the previous rate is being discontinued, so my example was LIBOR, that's going away. The new rate is a benchmark interest rate. Mine's daily SOFR, more on benchmark interest rate in a bit. I think the updated hedge relationship is going to be effective. So if I'm a company, I'm going to change the, 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 the swap from LIBOR to SOFR. I'm going to elect to not de-designate and redesignate, and I'm probably going to elect to change the benchmark interest rate from, from LIBOR to SOFR. All right. So far, so good. Um, well, so far, I hope so good. Yes. <laughs> and for our listeners, I sort of made a face at, at Chef because so far, so good for him who deals with this every day. It's definitely a lot for the rest of us to follow, but I, I think I at least am following along, so keep going. All right. So now, remember the way fair value hedges work. We book changes in fair value of the derivative. But we also book changes in fair value of the debt or LIBOR. So up till now, I've been booking changes in fair value of the debt based upon changes in LIBOR. So the debt is on the balance sheet at an amount that reflects changes in fair value due to changes in LIBOR. If I change the benchmark interest rate from LIBOR to SOFR, I've now got a problem because the debt is on the balance sheet based upon changes in fair value to LIBOR, but I just changed it to be changed in fair value of SOFR. So there's another area of relief that 848, uh, they recognize that this would be an issue. And they, they basically said you have a couple of options here. 
Because you've changed the designated benchmark interest rate from LIBOR to SOFR, going forward, when we compute changes in fair value, we're going to have to use SOFR to determine changes in fair value. That's going to have to be the discount rate you use. That makes sense. As it relates to what to do with this basis adjustment, two things you can do. One, you can either book like a cumulative catch-up, which would go through P&L to sort of change the basis adjustment to pretend like I've been marking the debt based upon SOFR all along as opposed to LIBOR. You can do that. That'll create a P&L hit, um, but it'll likely make the hedge the most effective going forward if you choose that path. The other path is to sort of adjust how you're computing the change in fair value of the debt, either through the cash flows you're using or adding a spread to the discount rate so that you don't create an immediate change in the basis adjustment, but it'll effectively happen over time through the, through the fair value calculation. That will not create a pop because we're not doing a cum catch up to the adjustment, but it might make the hedge less effective going forwards because the derivative we're just marking to market through P&L and if we sort of fudge the way that we're marking to market the hedged item a little bit, that will create a disconnect between the derivative and the hedged item. So uh, two options um, that you can do, but two different effects from doing so. So I know that was a lot. I know it was complicated because now we're getting into the mechanics of how you calculate changing for value. But I would walk away from this the same thing, you know, similar to the themes that you took from, from Nick's. There's relief. You know, there's relief from having to de-designate and redesignate. There's relief for you know being able to change the nature of the hedging relationship to reflect it's now SOFR as opposed to LIBOR. And then there's relief for different the, the, the results of making those changes to hedge accounting. So that was so pretty Chip, simple, right, Heather? Exactly. I totally followed along. I mean, in seriousness, I did follow along. But I do have a question because there's, since you have these two methods, is there a method we see more companies using or is it really just facts and circumstances and preference of that individual company? Not yet. I mean, I think going back to what Nick said earlier, right, um, particularly in fair value hedges, there's nothing to do on the debt, right? So people have to change the debt. And I yes. think on the derivative side of the house, we haven't seen a lot of people make the changes to the derivatives yet because what they're waiting for is some of these more industry-wide sort of things that are going to cause it to move from LIBOR to SOFR. So I would expect to see in the future, you know, more people changing fair value hedging relationships and therefore availing themselves of the 848 relief. And, you know, I don't know which one they'll choose. Um, you, you know, arguably... The one where you take a P&L hit, it might be the easiest one to do from a calculation perspective and set yourself up for the future. Mm-hmm. But we'll have to see how big of a P&L hit would that be and, and, and it was, you know, how do people feel about that? That, that I guess we'll just have to see what, what, what happens. So before we move on to kind of some wrap-up questions, let me ask a question uh, more broadly because this whole podcast, we've been talking in the context of you have debt that, or I guess could be another instrument, but you're hedging an instrument that's indexed to LIBOR, and then you're moving to the SOFR rate. And I've, I think some of these changes, companies may be moving to a different rate. So Nick, I'll direct this to you. Would those other rates also be eligible for this relief? So, so rather, most of the relief is... Um, is related to the rate that you're moving off of, or if that rate is being discontinued. So 
if you're moving off of LIBOR, which is being obviously discontinued as a result of reference rate reform, there will be some relief in 848 that's available to you. Um, depending on the rate you're moving to, uh, some of that relief may or may not be applicable. Um, and, and you know, just as an example, some of the, the fair value hedging um, relief that, that Chip talked about, if you're moving off of LIBOR onto a, another rate that's not considered a benchmark interest rate under US GAAP, obviously some of that fair value relief wouldn't be applicable. Okay. So then my follow-up question to that is, I think we've been talking about this sort of context of U.S. LIBOR. And I think, Nick, you mentioned at the beginning, and we've talked in other podcasts that there are other LIBOR rates, some of which actually think have changed faster even than our sort of U.S. quota LIBOR. So with those contracts, if you reference one of those, I'll call them other LIBOR rates, be eligible. And if there's better terminology, please feel free to uh, to correct me on that. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I mean, I think the the in in whether it's in the U.S. or other jurisdictions, if it's a rate that's going away as a result of reference rate reform, and in the U.S. it's LIBOR to SOFR or some other rate, um, it would work. This I think it would work the same way in the other jurisdictions as well. If there's a rate that's going away and you're moving to a different rate, um, as long as that rate that you're moving off of is being discontinued, uh, there's the potential for for, for relief. That's very helpful. So then let me go move to another topic. And actually, uh, Brett, I want to go back to you. You had mentioned earlier in the conversation that there is some new guidance, that a new exposure draft that's out there. So can you give us a little bit more on that and what's going on with that? Right. A, a couple pieces um, in, in it. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the exposure draft just issued a couple months ago defers the sunset date of 848 uh, from year-end 2022 all the way out to year-end uh, 2024. Uh, and that same exposure draft also proposes to expand uh, SOFR indices that are available to be considered a benchmark interest rate. Um, you know, it includes not only overnight SOFR, but would also include different tenors of SOFR that are that have now developed in the marketplace. And so as, as Chip had mentioned before, and Nick was just talking about, that benchmark interest rate is an important element of fair value hedges of interest rate risk. All right. Very helpful. So maybe just to wrap things up, and I think I've, and most of my podcasts this way, but definitely this is a topic for people who aren't dealing with this every day that can get complicated, uh, very complicated, very quickly. So just curious from your own experiences, what you would recommend as you're talking to clients and engagement teams that are dealing with some of these scenarios. And perhaps, Brett, I'll start with you on that. I would remember that 848 is not blanket relief that applies to all scenarios. It's not a free pass and do whatever you want with, with, uh, with, with LIBOR hedges. Uh, you re- and secondly, you really need to step through the guidance expedient by expedient to remember where you are in the different stages of relief. All right. That's helpful. And Chip? Yeah, I mean, I guess very similar to Brad, my my takeaways are, you know, you need to really carefully consider like what modifications are happening to the derivative, what modifications are happening to the hedged item. Um, and if you're making changes other than just to replace LIBOR from SOFR, the application of the guidance or the ability to apply the guidance becomes much more complicated. And then, you know, we've said this a couple of times, but each hedge relationship by type and nature may have different areas of the relief that it qualifies for and, and, and that it doesn't qualify for. 
Yeah. And I think Chip, I'd chime in with that one that, you know, as we talked about documentation of what relief you're pointing to is going to be very critical here. And then Nick, how about from your experience? Yeah, maybe two things I'd say. Um, first, I mentioned this earlier, but, you know, don't wait until the derivative or the hedged item are modified to start thinking about the accounting implications to your hedges. Um, and I think a second one, I'm, I'm sure this has been mentioned on, on previous podcasts, but, you know, uh, disclosures around reference rate reform continue to be an area of focus, you know, for the SEC, um, where companies are in their reference rate reform journey, what their exposures are, what they have their arms around, what they don't, um, you know, transparent disclosure here would be, I think is key. I think that's a great reminder. And I also think that's a good lead in to just a broader reminder that as we talked about on the past podcast, not just these uh, debt instruments that may be referenced to LIBOR, but lots of other types of instruments. And so really getting on top of those because the, as we talked about at the beginning, our runway is running out. So gentlemen, is always such a pleasure to have you on. I think this great conversation and definitely very helpful. For more information, am I correct in saying that we you should go look at uh, both our reference rate reform guide as well as probably our derivatives and hedging guide, Chip? Yes. All right, perfect. And then final question, and this is going to wrap up my month of focusing in on summer. And this one's, a, a, I think, an easy question. So if you had a choice, are you pro-summer or pro-winter? So, Brett, I'll let you go first. Hmm. I'm pro winter. Wow! Not that not that I'm anything have anything really against summer, but um, I do I do like a little snow around me. I like snow blowers. I grew up in Wisconsin, and kind of brings me bring bring me back home there. That's a very fair point. Gotta love those blizzards. All right, Chip, how about you? I, I am like Brett, a big fan of the snow blower and any power tool that I can use without hurting <laughs> myself. But I'm gonna have to go with summer. All right. Any reasons or just in general, like summer better? You know, just, uh, uh, you know, the warm weather, sunny days, longer days, uh, you know, kids are out of school and happier. Um, yeah. And Nick, finally, how about you? Um, I'm going to have to side with Brett here. Um, pro winter. I, uh, I love skiing and I hate the heat. All right. Well, so it's going to be 50-50 because I do agree with both Brett and, and Nick on your reasoning. I like winter, but I have to go with Chip that the long days, the less cranky kids, the sunshine, all of that is such a big plus. So as always, gentlemen, thanks for playing along with my fun question. And thanks for joining me today. That does it for today. Join me back here on Thursday for more ESG content with a deep dive into the more than 14,000 comment letters submitted to the SEC on their climate proposal. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. 
This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.